Welcome to the Centre for Innovation, Technology and Organisation seminar. My name is Camilla Noonan and I'm the director of the centre. Our guest today is Dr. Todd May and he's going to be speaking about meaningful work. Great. Thank you, Camilla. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so the, the switch from academia to consultancy has been um, very challenging. Um, just I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experience. I have one client in my consultancy and that's sort of what prompted me to decide to make the change. And um, they're sort of a a high-end uh, financial consultation firm itself. So they, they consult and I consult for them based upon their, their, the soft things about uh, they want to change their culture or they're, they're, they're a relatively new company. So they want to make important changes now before uh, bad habits and practices get ingrained. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about working with um, a social enterprise cafe, I think towards the end. Uh, very quickly. But my, my background coming into the philosophy of work was primarily through continental philosophy, hermeneutics, as I'll talk about today. And it was mostly the, if you're familiar with hermeneutics, it's mostly the German philosophy of uh, Martin Heidegger, and then the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur. And I'll be focusing on Paul Ricoeur mostly, um, his theory on speech, act, or his appropriation of speech act theory from the ordinary language philosophers in, uh, from, from Oxford. Um, so the, the main debates about meaningful work um, in philosophy have really to do with political debates about whether what, what meaningful work is, which um, is a broad topic. And then um, the, the more heated debates have to do with to what extent does a government or a society or community try to ensure or guarantee there's meaningful work. And as you might expect, you get arguments from left-leaning philosophers and right-leaning philosophers. Right-leaning philosophers tend to be libertarian and they don't want any kind of paternalism. So those are, those are things that are those are the debates that will not go away. Um, my interest in uh, meaningful work is, a, or at least this talk is a bit more modest and that it's a bit more philosophically conservative methodologically, not politically, but methodologically in the sense that I'm interested in how to make sense of the phenomenon of meaningful work, um, because I think there are a lot of assumptions that go on about how work is meaningful. And I'm, I want to see more concrete connections. So uh, one aspect of this um, area that I want to focus on is what I tried to talk about in terms of the work flourishing gap. And I mentioned it in an article on, on speech act theory um, in philosophy and social criticism. So this seminar I'm, I'm kind of using as a work in progress to hear some ideas about what you think about my idea of this work flourishing gap. And it's more at this stage is more of an intuition would have observed that it's not been entirely systematic, but from what I can gather, it's consistent with a lot of the empirical literature on meaningful work. Um, that comes out of sociology. So the, the work flourishing gap is essentially this. So we tend to have a, a cognitive bias that we just see work as a physical activity. And when we talk about meaningful work, we want to talk about how meaningful work coincides or links up to these things that tend not to be physical. They tend to be intellectual primarily. And they tend to be imaginative. They tend to be psychological. So things that aren't readily or noticeably concrete or, or physical in that sense. And so in a lot of the literature, um, the gap tends to go unrecognized. And what happens is they just talk about an instance of work and then they correlate it with what someone says about it or what they, or what a, a, you know, what a sociologist um, takes in terms of an interview or, or empirical data gathering, or a philosopher might just sort of broadly observe, these are the kinds of things that go on. These are what other philosophers of work talk about. And so we can link uh, an activity work to something like job satisfaction, although there's a lot of um, blowback against identifying meaningful work in terms of job, job satisfaction. 
Um, a lot of political philosophers will talk about capabilities, uh, autonomy, increased autonomy, increased self-esteem. And so one of my concerns is this might happen. This might in fact happen, but if we don't understand how it occurs theoretically, then we're making some, some big assumptions about how work is meaningful. But I think one of the big um, knock-on effects of this is that uh, in the empirical literature, um, what happens is we make the assumption that, um, or we talk about meaningful work, and then we try to cite empirical examples of, yes, worker A says, I get satisfaction from this. I feel like I'm contributing to a greater good, these kinds of things. But and for me, that doesn't prove uh, that that particular act is, or that particular activity of work is meaningful. It merely presumes that there's this relation going on. So I want to see how it's going on. So my approach to the, the work flourishing gap is to try and think about work as not just a physical activity, but as something more. And so that's why I take hermeneutics. Um, and, and hermeneutics, if you're familiar with it, it's sort of its strength and its weakness is that it presumes and tries to understand how every kind of phenomenon that we encounter is linguistic. So it's sort of language or interpretation all the way down. Um, and there's good and bad versions of that one. You can get sort of a very post-structural version, which means that everything's constructed and written. Um, that's not very, that hermeneutics doesn't go that far, at least not, not the, um, the, the initial thinkers like um, um, Gadamer, Recur, and Heidegger. Um, but they certainly want to, they think there's a lot that can be gained from, from viewing different kinds of phenomena as being linguistic. So I take Ricoeur's speech act theory, um, which is one side of his theory of action. The other side has to do with narrative. I, I won't go into that. Um, and, and what he does is he looks at the speech act theory of Austin and Searle, primarily Austin. And he's interested in the way in which um, they carve up the three distinctions. So there's locution, illocution, and perlocution. Um, and I'll just briefly mention, if you're not familiar with Austin's speech act theory, I'll just briefly mention what he does, what Searle does. So they're, they're primarily interested in illocution, but to begin, locution has to do with constitutive statements, or if you do a lot of philosophy, analytic philosophy, they have to do with propositional statements, assertions, um, and there's obviously controversy about whether or not those are the same thing, but that's a, that's a different matter. And if you, so if you take a statement like it's raining at the illocutionary level, they'll just look at it as to whether or not it's accurate in terms of its correspondence to what's actually occurring. So um, if it's sun, sunny outside and I say it's raining, obviously that's, that, that fails at the locutionary level. And the illocution has to do with um, conventions and uh, normative frameworks about whether or not something fits within a kind of performance. And of course, Judith Butler and a lot of other philosophers look at this illocutionary level to see how different kinds of spheres of language games and activities and practices are virtuous or vicious. Um, in terms of what they do. So um, a lot of the feminist philosophy looked very recent, or it was a, a few years ago, looked at the way in which language and pornography work and how um, it fits within a normative, its own normative framework, but then how it becomes vicious um, in relation to other types of communities and practices. Uh, and then there's perlocution. And um, interestingly enough, uh, Austin and Searle really don't have much time for perlocution. They, because um, for particularly for Searle, Austin's a little bit vague on this, but particularly for Searle, um, perlocution has to do with unintentional effects. And so there's not much he has to say about that. Um, now, what I'll, I'll go into more examples about the, the difference between the three um, when I look at work. But what's interesting about Recur is he's interested in um, illocution 
to some extent, locution, but he's really interested in perlocution. He thinks that the perlocutionary dimension it is what has potentially um, a huge impact in terms of transforming the way we think, the way we see, and the way we imagine. So I'll go into that in a little bit. Okay, and um, so I, what I like to say about perlocution is um, Austin and I believe Sir will call them sequel effects. They just things that happen. To give you an example, if um, I say the phrase John smokes at the locutionary level, you can take that to mean do, is John really smoking or does he really smoke? At the illocutionary level, um, for Searle, it depends how I'm going to render this. So if I say in this tone, John smokes, um, it's sort of it's sort of morally critical of the fact that John smokes. And so that fits within a kind of normative framework of you have background knowledge that smoking is not good. Maybe it's said in an area that's public and so you say, okay, maybe it's okay to smoke, but it's certainly not okay to smoke in a public area. So those kinds of things come in and those are, are very important to, to Austin and Searle um, for understanding what that's doing at the elocutionary level, because elocution just has to do with truth conditions and elocution has to do with all this background knowledge you're, you're pulling in to understand what's going on. Now, the, the perlocutionary level for John Smokes might be it, it instills some kind of hesitancy in me to continue my own habit of smoking. And that may not have been intended by the speaker who says it in that way. Um, so that's what's going on in those kinds of um, everyday instances of, of speech act, according to Austin and Searle. If we look at work, um, if we view it as a linguistic artifact, um, we can we can translate uh, what's going on in the three dimensions of locution, et cetera, into work-specific types of things. And so what I like to talk about is the locutionary um, aspect of work is simply the task. Um, so it could be performing data entry. It could be you doing teaching preparation. Uh, it could be you doing research. And then, um, it, so it's, it's instrumental in that aspect. And this correlates very well with how there's assumptions about the physical activity of work. That's simply the physical task of doing something. And then, of course, the jump for a lot of philosophers and sociologists is to ask whether this is meaningful. Worker A reports that they get a great sense of satisfaction from, from data entry or, or marking essays. I know if you have to do that, you probably enjoy that quite a bit. Um, so, and so that's very simple for recur, um, but for recur, any kind of task you describe, which is interesting, you have to describe it linguistically and recur doesn't think that's accidental. Um, I won't go into that too much, but so if you take an action like uh, Plato taught, which he discusses in relation to Anthony Kenny's work, what he not notices about the locutionary level is it's so much, it's, it opens up so many question marks and doors. So it's not that you just have the, the activity of Plato taught or Todd did data entry or Todd marked essays. You get questions about what did Todd teach? Whom did Todd teach? Uh, so all these are the questions open up, which Recur finds very interesting. So he would be critical of just saying, and, and if you know Collingwood and, and other kinds of um, analytic philosophers, um, they're very, these kinds of philosophers are very skeptical about the whole idea that you can just take a proposition by itself. So the present king of bald, um, the present king of France is bald. Um, to take Bertrand Russell's example, there could be a lot of controversy about this statement about um, about how you determine whether it's true. Philosophers like Collingwood and Recur would say, "Come on, this is a non-starter. It doesn't meet certain conditions to even consider it as a truthful statement." Um, so there's so much more going on in propositional statements at the at the locutionary level. Now, action at the illocutionary level is interesting because if you take the example of, of Plato taught, the question is. Did Plato teach well according to certain conventions? Um, so um, 
did Todd do the job talk very well when he came to interview at UCD for um, the Center for Innovation Technology, uh, these kinds of things. Maybe I just stood looking at the screen of my presentation um, instead of engaging the audience. So these are the kinds of things that come at the, the, um, the illocutionary level about action. Now, the perlocutionary level for recur um, can be intentional. I think in some of the literature, I say it's unintentional, but it can be intentional or unintentional. Recur leaves it broad. And he thinks um, at the perlocutionary, what, what's going to happen is outside of the domain of conventions, something's going to trigger a reaction in you that wasn't necessarily uh, part of the locution and illocution, uh, illocutionary dimensions. So I go to a lecture and uh, by Plato, and it really causes me uh, to become skeptical about Athenian democracy or something like this, or it really causes me to be skeptical about political about politics in general. If you know um, Leo Strauss's work, he thinks that Plato's dialogues really push towards this this kind of skepticism about political engagement. And um, that might be sort of a, a knock-on or sequel effect in that sense. It might, it might transform the way I see others and how I engage with others. And Ricoeur thinks this is, this is very important. So to give an example, another quick example from the literature um, that I've, I've, I've discussed in my own work is that if we take Guy Fawkes and his attempt to bomb parliament at the locutionary level, we can talk about that as an action. Uh, we can even talk about the historical background to it. At the illocutionary level, we can talk about how that action violates or fits within certain norms or expectations or mores. And then at the perlocutionary level, what we do is we have this historical event um, that actually took place and it becomes the topic of a graphic novel and then later a film and then later a, a movement, the anonymous movement. So those are, so that's what recurs sees in terms of the perlocutionary transformations, historical fact um, or, or event. And then we could talk about how it was good, how it was bad, according to very broad um, uh, criteria about what constitutes good or bad. And then suddenly we have an inspiration for the anonymous movement. Um, and, and so Recur thinks this is important to observe for better or for worse. He thinks obviously there can be bad instances of, of this kind of perlocutionary um, um, effect as it were. Okay, so with um, just to go to, to examples of work, um, so at the locutionary level, uh, we, we talk about the task, it's instrumental. And then at the illocutionary level, we talk about the way how that task was performed. Was it performed well according to a, a variety of criteria? It might be your employer. It might be the client or the customer. It might be someone who's just commenting on it. all these kinds of things come into play. Um, nowadays, it might even come into social media as a separate um, way of, of viewing um, illocutionary effects, because as we know, social media, a lot of things are taken out of context, yet those kinds of comments still have a lot of traction and bite in some way. And then at the perlocutionary level, we can talk about the ways in which employees, um, students, customers become transformed by that effect. So I'll take a very basic one first. Um, in my work with the Social Enterprise Cafe when I was, when I was at, at Kent, I was asked by the owner of a social enterprise cafe to come in and help her make sense of her own business so that she could uh, more readily apply for government grants to support her business. And so I had no idea what to expect. So I went down there. I just asked her to why she started this business. And then I asked her um, um, what she finds interesting about it and, and who she works with. So the, the people she primarily works with are disadvantaged economically. And a lot of them either have mental health issues 
or they are they are um, criminals who have been prosecuted and are trying to they're basically in a halfway house and they're trying to work back into society but they can't get work so her social enterprise cafe employs uh, these types of people to give them a foundation so they can move on and she also the other thing that she provides is her cafe um, she has inroads with other local businesses in the area. So she trains them and provides them with certain skills so that they can move on in different areas. And she also helps them to engage uh, with the public by not only working in the cafe, but she does catering events and gets them active within within the community in that way. So we talked about a lot of different things. But one thing that really stood out in the conversation was uh, when I asked her just to describe something that goes on on a daily basis in the cafe with uh, one of her disadvantaged uh, volunteer employees. And she talked about baking a cake for, for the social enterprise cafe. And um, what she noticed is that when she just went, well, what I observed when she described it is a lot of these people don't have experience with baking whatsoever. So a simple task um, involving knowing, and if you've ever baked yourself, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Baking is very much like chemistry. Timing is really important as well as amounts. And so what a lot of the employees have to really be learn and become sensitive to is not only proper measurement and taking things carefully, but knowing how to put things in at the right time. You know, sometimes you put sugar in a little bit and you just don't all, you don't, you don't dump it in into the mix and these kinds of things. And so um, what happens through this kind of locution of a task, if they do it well at the elocutionary level, whether or not they're gonna, they're gonna make a, bake, uh, a, a good cake that tastes good and looks nice, um, what happens at the perlocutionary level is that they learn uh, what I like to say is certain virtues or they like they discover certain things about their character. They might learn that they're impatient and learn that they have to be able to cope with being patient. Or they might get a, a lot of them found that um, they felt quite isolated and alienated. And they not only felt a sense of um, community with the fellow workers, but also because the clientele that would come into the social enterprise cafe was very much aware of the fact that it was a social enterprise cafe. They would, they would talk about the things they would buy, such as the cake, and they, they would engage with the employees that way about, oh, this, I really enjoyed this cake. And, and they would have a conversation with that. So these kinds of things start to broaden out. Um, just one more example before we open up to discussion. Um, so in the consultation I'm doing with this financial firm, um, I'm working with a lot of the analysts at different levels, and one of them has to do with the area of personal development. And in one of the consultations, the initial consultation is with, was with six analysts. And I, we talked about, I had to understand what they were doing on a daily basis. And to be frank, I do not, I really, to this day, I still don't understand what they do. It's very complex. Um, the consultation started in June. Um, and I, so we, we talked quite a bit for the first hour. And then I said, um, all right, now that we've established this, I want to move on to more philosophical topics, since this is one of the reasons why I'm consulting for your company. And I asked them, um, does your job make you a better person? And I didn't know how that was going to go. I thought, oh, it's, if you've been, you know, when you do the seminars with students and there's this silence and you don't know if they have a lot of thoughts and they just are too scared to participate or they're just unengaged. Um, so I asked that there was there was some you know, several seconds of silence, which on Zoom is amplified as opposed to being in an in-person room. And um, one of the analysts came back and said, I never thought about that. And I want to say yes, but I'm not quite sure how, because I want to say yes, because I do enjoy my job. I'm just not quite sure how that works in terms of making me a better person. And then another one of the other analysts um, said, um, and she started talking about something that was very difficult for her. 
And she talked about, and I have a blog on this um, that goes into a little bit more detail, but she has a very difficult, she's very uh, introverted, very um, lacks a lot of self-confidence in terms of um, being in social situations. But as an analyst, what's interesting is that her role demands that she be outgoing, engaged, uh, and confident because she has to go into firms. Often it's, it can be a very hostile environment because when you bring in an analyst or a consultant, a lot of the employees within the, co- the client firm think that you're either going to uh, make them redundant or you're going to criticize the way they do something. Um, and what she found is that because of these kinds of demands, um, she thought she wasn't going to do well. But what she found was because of certain resources available to her at the company, including mentorship, um, she was able to see herself in a different role when she was actually performing her job. So she has all these tasks at the locutionary level and whether or not she's doing them well at the illocutionary level, but the perlocutionary level, she gets this kind of opportunity to step outside of herself and actually see herself as a different person when she's in this role. And then she said, um, she does see that working for her as a person, a private citizen or person outside of work, she still struggles with it, but this really helps her out. Um, and being able to identify and deal with situations uh, where she normally would feel quite anxious. So that's the way in which I like to describe the different dimensions of work. And I think, although it might be quite trivial, I think describing work in terms of this linguistic theory of speech acts really opens up a lot of different dimensions. And the other thing I think it provides is, I mentioned this in some other literature, is that it 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 helps us to provide Um, different critical perspectives about what's going on with work. So there's not just one thing about work, whether it's the bottom line about um, being instrumental, locutionary, or, you know, looking well or doing things with style. Um, You have, you have sort of a pluralistic or multidimensional approach where you can see these different things going on and measure them against each other in in some way. And I I draw on Amartya Sen's capabilities approach to um, articulate this. So we can see each kind of level as a, as a functioning within a capability of living well. And you can see whether or not um, there's a conflict and if there's a conflict, which function, which, fun- which functions are conflicting and which one might have more meaning to you uh, as a person. So I hope that wasn't too long or, or too fast or convoluted, but um, um, yeah, that's it and, and thank you. <laughs>